So we're starting a new series, uh, finished Ignorant last week, and I've been praying about what to do next. In fact, I've been praying since we started the Ignorant series, always looking ahead. And I was thinking about the things that I get emailed on, issues, problems, discussions, conversations I have in counseling. What, what are the big things? What are the issues? What are the problems that need to be addressed? So let me ask, do you have problems that need to be addressed? Anybody have any money problems that might need to be addressed? How about very difficult relationships with people? Anybody have any of those? We're like, I just don't know what to do with this. How about being happy? Anybody struggle with being happy? Or are you Emmett from the Lego movie? Everything is awesome. (laughs) How about motivation? Anyone struggle with being motivated? You know what you should be about, and you feel a lot better when you're being about that stuff, but actually being about it is hard, because there's so many distractions now. Craigslist, Netflix, Instagram, Twitter, news, more news, right? Motivation can be a problem. How about making decisions, just simply making decisions? Has it got harder to make decisions today? I think so. So I needed to get a fan for our wood stove to make sure that my my wife likes our house to be 78 degrees or warmer all winter long. So I knew, like, I got to make sure our house is 78 degrees or warmer. I come home, it's like Hawaii in there. Like, it's 32 degrees out, my kids are in shorts and a tank top. Goodness, go outside. It's cold. So I was looking for a fan, and I just put in Amazon, vintage metal fan, 700 results. I just turned it off. I'm like, I'm not even going to try to shop like that. Because there's an OCD in me who's like, I better look at all these just in case one's better. So it makes it impossible for me to make that choice. I'm like, God, I'm not doing it. Decisions. How about peace? Do you feel like you're living in the peace that God has for you? How about dealing with disagreeing people? You ever struggle with people disagreeing with you? Like, just agree with me. That's what I want to say to my kids all the time. Just agree with me. I'm right. Come on. Follow the rules and it'll be brilliant for you. How about temper problems? Anger problems? How about Have you ever said something that you wish you had not said? Amen. You just want to hit undo button, you know, like undo, undo, let's go back a bunch. How about prayer? Anyone struggle with prayer? Because the Bible says this, we're to pray without ceasing. Is anybody doing that? Like the only thing you're ever doing is unceasing prayer. And why do we pray? Why should we pray? How do we pray? Prayer's a hard one. How about evil? Like temptation, evil, sin. You ever struggle with those things? Right. What could possibly cover all those topics and more? There's this great book. It's called the book of James. James is one of my favorites. It's in the New Testament. It's wisdom literature which is normally reserved for the Old Testament, but it's in the New Testament, and it's just amazing. 
So we're going to go through the book of James, just grabbing. There's, I didn't even cover half the topics he covers. It's just one after another. He's amazing. So I'm going to ask you to do that this next week. Try to read James two, three, four times. It's a 20-minute read. Just keep going over it. And what you'll see is it, it comes alive. It's a brilliant, brilliant book. So we're going to jump into James. So James chapter 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. James, who do you think wrote the book of James? We're going to start out super easy. James. The problem, though, is there are seven different Jameses in the New Testament. So what James is it? One of the Jameses in the New Testament, he is called James the Less. How would you like that to be your name? You introduce yourself. Hey, what's your name? My name's James. Oh, which James are you? Oh, I'm James the Less. Oh, well, I got to go. I'm looking for James the Great. Apparently, you're not him. (laughs) So which James is this guy? Turns out, he is the half-brother of Jesus. So he's the younger half-brother of Jesus Christ. And if you know his story, James and his brothers, Jude, who also becomes a leader in the church, didn't believe in Jesus. Right? Read Mark chapter 3, read John chapter 7. Both of those texts have this interaction of Jesus and his brothers. And in Mark chapter 3, they're literally, Jesus has lost his mind. We got to take him home. He's running around telling people he's God. He's skiing on Lake Galilee without a ski boat. Dude, you got to come home. This is getting crazy. Come home. So they didn't believe Jesus was divine which is understandable. Anybody in here have an older brother? Was there any time in your life that you said or thought in your brain, my older brother is Jesus Christ? Right? No. I had an older brother. He's a year and a half older than me, which is just enough room to like make it a real tense relationship at times. Right? There was never one time I thought my older brother was Jesus Christ. There was many times I thought he was the Antichrist. (laughs) Right? Now, what changes James and later Jude, who become pillars of the early church, read Acts chapter 15, what changes them from doubters and disbelievers to followers and leaders in the church that Jesus established? The resurrection. That's what changes them. Like, oh, you were buried for three days and you came back to life. We did not expect that. We probably better listen to what you're saying. What'd you, what'd you say you were again? Okay, right? It's one of the great proofs for the divinity of Jesus, that his whole family, they become believers and leaders in the early church. So, author is James, younger half-brother of Jesus. Notice he doesn't even tell us that. If I was the younger brother of Jesus... Guess what I would tell everyone? My Twitter bio would be, 
younger half-brother of Jesus, by the way. But he doesn't. Pretty humble dude. Now, why does he write this letter? Like, he had to have a reason to sit down and take the time to write out this letter. Why does he write it? Well, notice, it says, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion or the scattering. Here's what we know from history. The church at this time was undergoing tough times, and they were going to get even worse. So right about when this book is written, we have the record of what's called the Nazareth Decree. It was written by Emperor Claudius to the people in Nazareth, and it threatened tomb robbers with death. At the same time, the Emperor Claudius kicked all the Jewish believers out of Rome because they were following a guy named Crestus, which is a close enough term for Christ. So what does that mean right there? Why would he be worried about tomb robbers in Nazareth when he lives in Rome? Well, because there's this group of people that are beginning to grow, and they were not going to the pagan temples anymore, and they weren't involved in the economy like they had been before. They weren't buying the junk anymore, and they were starting to ruin the economy. So he starts to say, this is affecting us. Who is this group of people? Believers in Jesus, the guy that came out of the tomb. So that's beginning, and it's just going to get worse. Ten years from now, Caesar Nero is going to come on the scene, and he is going to be super bad. So what happens is James knows this. He sees this, and he begins to write this book, and I title this book this, The Joy-Wise Life. Both of those. Not just a joyful life, and not just a wise life, but the joy-wise life. I think you need both. Like, I know people that are full of joy, but they have no wisdom. Do you know people like that? They're free-spirited. They're never planning anything. They live in the moment. They're creative. They're spontaneous. They miss every appointment with you. They don't pay their bills. Their bank account is shut down, right? They make you insane. Like their plans, I'm going to quit school, I'm going to quit my job, and I'm going to buy a van, I'm going to live in my van, down by the river. Oh, don't even tell me, man. Right? They need some wisdom. But then you have other people, they have wisdom with no joy. So they don't have a five-year plan, they have a 50-year plan. And it's just, I'm going to live exactly this way. They budget every penny. Like, they won't spend anything. It's just, nope, that's not in my budget. They're OCD. They're, they're nutty, right? They're way too uptight. And then they always had these pithy little wise sayings for everything. Oh, organize or agonize. Oh, I'll show you agony if you keep making those pithy statements, buddy. Right? What you need is both. And what James does in this book is he blends them both to live a joy-wise life. I love it, okay? If you try to outline the book, which I tried to do, you cannot. It just doesn't outline. Because James is writing about life. Can you outline life? Mm -mm. Life doesn't cooperate like an outline. The weather's not gonna cooperate. The economy's not gonna cooperate. People aren't gonna cooperate. It's just not gonna happen the way you think it's gonna happen. Your cat won't cooperate. So what James is going to say is this, because of life and how it's not going to cooperate, 
you actually need a skill. And this skill enables you, no matter what life throws at you, to live it well. And that skill is wisdom. And with wisdom, you can mature and you can grow no matter what variables life throws at you. It's brilliant. And what we'll see with James is this. He's hyper-pragmatic. He doesn't worry about transitions or flows. It's down-to-earth, matter-of-fact. I'm just going to give you the information, pure, condensed form. And that's what he does. And I'll show that to you right here. Notice what he does. Verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Do you catch that? James essentially says, hi guys, heard you're having a really bad day. Smile and be happy. That's right out of the gate. (laughs) No transition, no flow, no, hey, I'm so thankful. Hey, haven't seen you for a while. Hi, having a bad day, good. So when you read James, it may give you PTSD because he's not politically correct. He's not gonna, he's not positive sandwich guy. Hey, I'm gonna compliment you. Then I'm gonna pound you and then I'm gonna compliment you. He doesn't do any of that. It's just straight up, this is the way it is. Your life is hard, be happy. Got fired from your job. Test came back. You got cancer. You just went bankrupt. Your house burned down. Your relationships are a mess. You're depressed. You're lonely. You're rejected. Count it all joy. That's James. It's like a slap in the face every time you read it. And this is what we're going to be doing. It's brilliant. He's a mutant, right? Just blunt mutant. When I've been, I've been reading James a bit, and the guy that he reminds me of, current, is a guy named Jordan Peterson, who wrote the 12, lives, 12 Rules of Life. He's kind of like that. Like Jordan Peterson, if you've seen interviews, of, he never smiles. He's just like, matter of fact, this is the way it is. It's kind of, that's what he is. He's like Jordan Peterson. Before there's a Jordan Peterson, there was James, the half-brother of Jesus. And I love it. And it's from this little text right here, that I have one of my sayings. And if you've been at Edgewater for a while, you would have heard it, and it's this. Hard is not bad. People that will tell me, hey, this is happening, it's hard, I say, doesn't mean that's bad. I say it to my kids all the time. It's one of those pithy little sayings where they're like, dad, be quiet. Hard's not bad, sweetie. Hard's not bad, okay? So let's try to take this apart. If he's like, hi, the very first thing he he wants to say is, listen, hard times, hard times, count it all joy. We should listen to what this guy has to say. If we want a joy-wise life, we should listen. So let's try to take this apart. Number one, notice this. When it comes to difficult days, number one, 
They are inevitable. Listen to what he says right here. Count it all joy, my brothers, when, not if, when you meet trials. Nobody gets out of this life without some scars. It's when. The only people that came to church this morning who believe that life is easy, they're right now in the nursery sucking on a binky. That's it. Everyone else knows, yeah, yeah. But James would say this. Tough times are unavoidable, but your misery is optional. That there's a, there's a perspective you can have. The good news is there is a lifestyle, a way of living that even when there's trials, you can still have a joy and a wise way of walking it out. So I want you to think for just one second. Let's say you're going through a really tough time right now. Or, or tomorrow morning, you get some news. It's cancer. It's bankruptcy. It's, you know, you're served papers, whatever it is. In that moment, how do you deal with that hard thing? What's the first thing your brain goes to? What's the first thing your brain does in that difficulty? Do you ignore it, hoping it will go away? Do you get fatalistic? Well, there's nothing I can do. All right. Do you start blaming Finding someone or something that's at fault, a person, a system, you blame. Do you just quit? Do you just roll up in a ball and quit? Is that how you handle difficulty? Do you turn to a substance to help you cope with it? Do you get angry and shake your fist, maybe at God? Do you beat yourself up? Oh, I'm so miserable. This always happens to me. It's, uh. Do you become an archaeologist? I know a lot of people become archaeologists when bad things happen. They start digging up their past, like, what did I do in the past that's now leading to this problem, right? And a lot of times they believe it's God punishing them. Oh, yeah, I lied in the second grade. That's why this is happening to me right now. When bad things happen, do you believe God's punishing you? There's a book called The Book of Diseases. Done a long time ago. They can never do it again. And they went around, they talked to these tribes, 138 of them, and they asked them some questions. One of the questions they asked was this. Why do you get sick? 135 out of 138 tribes said, because God's mad at us. There is... I think it goes all the way back to Eden. There is in the human brain a belief when something hard, something difficult happens to us, it must be God. God's doing this to us. So we blew it somehow, and God is up in heaven with like a Rolodex of plagues. Cancer. Ankyloisis. Forget it. You're not getting that one. I'll get it. 
Like God's just waiting almost like, I'm going to get you. It's in us. Do you believe that? If something bad happened to you tomorrow, a trial happened to you, would you believe God was getting you? Because that is so common. If that's true, how messed up is this world? We're going to be walking through life then, because we blow it enough, like beat dogs waiting for the next blow. I think there's only one being that wants us to live like that. If that's true, how busy would God be? There are 7 billion people on earth. How busy is God if that's what he does? Waiting for every mistake and like, right? How busy would he be just with me? Okay, Matt, flat tire, flat tire. Tranny goes out. All right, kids got the flu. All right, epidemic, pandemic, you're all dead, right? Like that's a nutty way of thinking. I think there's one that wants us to think that way. That God is punitively waiting to punish us. If you feel that way, you might memorize this verse. It's Lamentations 3.33. And that verse says real simply, it's in a time when the evil empire of Babylon is coming and destroying and burning Jerusalem to the ground. And it's in that context that God says he does not willingly afflict or grieve anyone. No way. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ in here, listen carefully. Hard times are not God punishing you. Hard times are not God punishing you for sin. Every punishment you and I rightfully deserve from God was poured out on the Son 2,000 years ago. And God will not be paid twice for the same sin. That would be unrighteous. God is not punishing you. There's one that wants you to think that way because it drives a wedge between you and him. No way. So James says, they're inevitable. When? They're coming. When? Number two, he says, they're unpredictable. When you meet trials, of various kinds. They're unpredictable. You cannot outplan hard times. I don't care if you're an Olympic gold medal doomsday prepper, you can't outplan hard times. You can't outplan cancer. You can't outplan crazy people. You can't outplan natural disasters, Hurricane Dorian, right? You can't plan that. You could plan to move to the West Coast, which might be wisdom. There's going to be unpredictable things that come into your life. So what James is going to say is this. Based on that, they're inevitable. They're unpredictable. You need a new skill. You need a new skill to walk out life. And that new skill is really a different perspective. Do you know how powerful perspective is? It's huge. It transforms things. So here's my best example. I have a friend, his name is Eric Cartier. He's a pastor 
in Colorado Springs. Great guy, great family, just they're awesome. Met his parents, I went to the school of ministry with him, love him. His parents, they're really cool. And they were telling this story about the dad who snores. Like crazy snore. Stuff is falling off the walls, snore, right? And so his wife, Eric's mom, was like, oh, it's driving me crazy. I can't sleep. It wakes me up. It's insane, his snoring. But then Eric's dad had a really bad heart attack. Almost died. Came back, got healthy, all that kind of stuff. He's doing well. And now the mom says this. I love to hear my husband snore at night. It keeps me asleep because I know he's breathing and he's alive. When he stops snoring, that's when I wake up now. That's a perspective change. This is what James wants us to have on something that you're like, ah, before it becomes, oh, it's a blessing. That's a perspective change. And so notice what he says. Okay, you're going to have them. They're unpredictable and they're inevitable. But notice how he frames it. You know, verse 3, that the testing of your faith. What's a hard time, according to James? It's a test of your faith. It's a test of you, of my faith. It's to see if you're viable. Do you know what viable means? Can you take it? Are you successful? Are you strong enough? This little phrase was extremely important in my life. So if you're new to Edgewater, when Edgewater first started, I hit two waves of difficulty that many of you have faced as well that kind of threw me. So within three months of Edgewater starting, my mom, who had been healthy her whole life, was diagnosed with stage four cancer. And she was given one year to live but she made it one month. And so that was like wave number one. Then five months after that, on a Tuesday night at 10.32, I got a phone call. And it was to inform me that my older brother had been in an automobile accident and had been killed. And that was just like, bam, bam. And if you've gone through stuff like that, you're not really sure how you're going to emerge. It's, one, it's a really, really weird thing. Like, how am I going to take this? How is this going to affect me? So the first months or whatever, you're almost like in a bubble, but then I liken it to an earthquake. The big earthquake will knock over a bunch of buildings, right? But then there will be these buildings that look perfect, but structurally they're totally 99% gone, and the smallest little tremor knocks them over. That's what happens when you have a really traumatic incident that happens to you. Just the littlest thing, all of a sudden you're like, ah, why'd that affect me so bad? Well, because there was a weakness there. So about a year later, I got into this like, I became like Jacob in Genesis 42, verse 36, where he's lost his son Joseph. He believes Joseph is dead. Simeon, his son, he's just been told is in prison. And he just erupts. And he begins to blame everybody else, just point his finger and blame. And then he does this. He just believes the worst. Joseph's dead. Simeon's dead. He wasn't. He was in prison. He was coming back. And then he says, and Benjamin's going to be next. It's just going to be worse and worse and worse. And I felt like, God, who's next? Who's next? My mom, my brother, who's next? 
one of my kids, my wife, like who's next? It was affecting me. And so I was walking in the woods, just talking, praying, trying to process this out. And I don't hear God's voice, not like audible, I'm not that guy. But as well as I can discern, God spoke to me on that walk. And it was this. And I just, I was two years out of engineering. I'd been an engineer for years before that. It was, Matt, why do you test things? And I'm just walking, it was like, strange question. Why do you test things? So we'll see if they're viable. You prototype, you design, you've done all your backstory, your work. And so now you're saying, will this thing do what we asked it to do? And how do we even make it better? How do we develop it? And it was like God said, Matt, that's what I want for you. I'm not letting this happen to you to destroy you, but to develop you. This is not punitive, but this is to purify, to bring you forth like gold. Trust me in it. Trust me. And it was there that, that God gave me Genesis 50, 20. What the enemy wants to use for evil, because cancer is not from God. There's no cancer in Eden. Cancer's from the evil one. Automobile accidents are from the evil one. What, what the enemy wants to use for evil, Matt, I will turn to good, to the saving of many lives. Trust me. Trust me. It's a test, Matt. Not to destroy, but to strengthen and to change you into something brilliant, to create gold in you. You got to know that. If you're a believer in Jesus, Whatever, no matter what the source is, the source can be the brokenness of this world, the source can be your own stupidity, the source can be the enemy, it could be Hebrews chapter 12, God is our great coach. The goal of it is to develop, to strengthen, to show that you're viable. And then, James says this, is to bring forth something. Character development. The test in your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect. Anyone want to be perfect? Complete, lacking in nothing. A trifecta. Steadfast, perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. Anybody want to lack in nothing? No more Amazon Prime, no more packages, because you lack in nothing. Now, this is good stuff. Now, what does it mean to be steadfast? Not a word we use very much anymore. You can learn about it almost by listening to the opposite. The opposite of steadfastness is wavering, unfaithful, like a bouncy Super Bowl, just bouncing around, never sticking. It's, it's a leaf versus a boulder. It's driftwood in the sea versus a lighthouse. It's Billy Graham. It's Mother Teresa. It's James. It's Jude. It's Esther. It's Ruth, Peter, Paul. That's what it is. Steadfast. I want to be steadfast. I want to be a lighthouse, not driftwood. That's what I want to be. And it happens when you stay put in difficult times. That's the way you grow and mature. 
If you run away from difficulty, if you run away from hard times, then you never grow. You never graduate. It's like if you've ever dealt with a drug addict, step one is to ask them, hey, when did you start taking drugs? I started taking drugs when I was 16. Okay? Well, listen, you're dealing with now the brain of a 16-year-old. Because when you start taking drugs, drugs become the coping mechanism. Whenever there's a hard time, you turn to drugs. So instead of growing and maturing and developing, you just stay like a 16-year-old. So I might be talking to a 40-year-old man, but I'm dealing with a 16-year-old brain. Because it's steadfastness, staying there, that grows you, that develops you, that makes us great. I want to be steadfast. I read a book a while back by David Brooks. Great book called The Road to Character. Recommend it. Brilliant. And in that book, he talks about Frances Perkins. That name may ring a bell. Um, She's the reason why right now we don't have sweatshops. We don't have North Valley Industrial Park sweatshop with 11-year-olds working there. Because what happened to her was that she was raised in a very wealthy home, um, and she happened to be outside in this historic event in 1911. It was the uh, Waistcoat Factory Fire. You can Google it. It changed our nation. Because it was this 10-story building, all these people working, bad conditions, and it started on fire in the bottom. And so people started running up the stairs to get away from the fire until they got to the 10th story. And then all of a sudden, they're trapped. No fire escapes. Uh, the fire... People were ill-equipped. They had these nets. When the people were jumping off the 10-story, they were just going straight through the nets. The hoses that they had to try to put out the fire didn't have enough water pressure to get the, get the water up there. Just a brutal, brutal thing. And Frances Perkins was standing out there watching this as a young lady. And she became a crusader. She became, like in a time when women didn't have the right to vote in 1911. She became a crusader. Becomes labor secretary. And in man's world, it's just amazing. And so... What's the metal that led her to do this, to become this brilliant, steadfast lighthouse? Well, David Brooks goes back to her education, which I found just fascinating. Okay? He said this, and I'm quoting from him now. He says, today, we look at students to cultivate their strengths. What are you good at? Let's make you better at that. A hundred years ago, a professor would look at moral weakness to correct it. So Frances Perkins, because of her upbringing, was lazy. So they forced her to memorize Latin verb tenses until she cried. Not to learn Latin, but to stop being lazy. She was super good at history and literature, and she stunk at chemistry. So guess what? They made her major. Chemistry. How crazy is that, right? Why? Because that's what you're weak at. And because of that, Francis Perkins said, I learned to throw myself into struggle because that's where I grew. How good is that? Mary Lyon, the the founder of that, that school, said this, go where no one wants to go and do what no one else wants to do. That's how you change the world. How different is that from us today? I love that. James would be like, that's the school I'm sending my kids to. I want that one. Stead. Fast. 
You stand in it, and you grow from it. That's what we're supposed to do. So maybe you're here today, and maybe you're going through a hard time. What do you do? I think there are three perspectives that people can have on difficult times. You can look at hard times, number one, as an enemy and try to escape it. But you never grow. You can look at it, number two, as a master that you have to endure. But then it's this gritted teeth, just kind of miserableness. Or you can take the James perspective. That says hard times, they're an opportunity to grow. God, use it. It's exactly what the Apostle Paul does. When he talks about the thorn in the flesh, his difficulty, he prays three times for it to go, to go away. It does not go away. Instead, God says, Jesus says, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. Paul, you're weak right here. I'm going to make you strong. So then Paul says, I glory now in difficult times. Ah, because he got it. Because he got it. And every Sunday, here's the thing. Every Sunday, we celebrate the worst time in history. We go to the communion table. What What do we remember at the communion table? The cross. The cross was so bad that Jesus says, if there be any other way, I don't want to be steadfast here. If there's some other solution than going through this, let this cup pass from me, but not my will but thy will be done. The Bible says, for the joy set before him, Christ endured the cross. The goal was good enough. Redemption of the world. The goal was good enough. So Edgewater, learn the perspective of James, Jesus, Paul. Count it all joy. My brothers, And sisters, when you meet various kinds of trials, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And so Jesus, this day, I pray for those that have come in here facing various kinds of trials. Parenting, marriage, financial, relational, career, depression, drugs, Disaster. I pray that by your spirit today, we would be a group of people who become lighthouses firmly built on you as our foundation. I pray that you would show to us the goal, the joy, the destiny, the character 
how you can take what our enemy means for evil and turn it for good. I pray that we would learn that even today as we hold the elements of communion. I pray this in your name. Amen.